0: For those of you who have been around Blackhawk for a while, I'm really excited uh, to introduce back someone who you know. If you have not been around Blackhawk for all that long, uh, you're going to get to meet somebody who is just a fantastic guy. Matt Rustin was actually a part of our staff team years ago as the pastor of adult ministries and spiritual formation. He was a part of the teaching team, involved with everything that was going on around here. And then God called him to uh, another ministry, an opportunity that he had to work with an Organization and a ministry called Made to Flourish, which really works predominantly. He stepped in as the executive director, and they work predominantly with churches with the idea of helping churches really connect the ideas of faith. And work, of what does it look like for us to be Christ followers on Sunday and take that into life in everything we do Monday through Friday. And with a series like this, it just made sense to bring this guy back and give him a chance to be able to speak to all of us. So here in the room, all sites and venues, if you're sitting on your couch, if you're listening in your car, keep your hands at 10 and 2. But for the rest of us, can, would you just join me in welcoming to the stage Mr. Matt Rustin? <laughs> Everybody. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Awesome. Well,
1: thank you, Matt. And it is so good to be back at Black Hawk, seriously. Uh, I'm getting like flashbacks right now as we speak, just, uh, so I was here 2011 to 2015, and that's seven years now since I've been here on this stage, and time has gone so quickly. I feel like it was just yesterday as I was pulling up uh, with Matt today to Blackhawk, but my wife Margie and I, we loved our time at Blackhawk, and we are huge fans of Madison, And of this church. Seriously, I I was thinking like we should be we should be getting some sort of a cut from the Madison Visitor Center because we are always talking, back in Kansas City where we live, we're, t- we're talking to people like, you got to go visit Madison, it is so cool, and when you're there, go check out Black Hawk Church. And uh, we're, just, we're just huge fans of this city and of, of, of this church. Uh, actually, we're, we, we've got kids now, and uh, we're, we're sort of trying to like, get them to come back to college here. So they're young, but we were out on the terrace on Friday, and we just had this amazing weekend, right? It was just gorgeous out, and we're on the, on the Union Terrace, looking out to the lake, feeding our kids lots of ice cream so they'll get positive associations. And we're literally, we're, we're literally like, you guys like Madison, don't you? <laughs> and then I literally turned to them and I said, you could come to college here. And I feel like they were saying, uh, Dad, just let us go to elementary school first. First things first. <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah, we, we love this place. And, and speaking of our family, so uh, when we left here in 2015, there were only two of us, Margie and I, and our numbers have doubled. So, um, so yeah, so this is Olivia, she's six, and that's Owen, and he's four. Uh, Olivia is fierce, she's in charge, and uh, she calls the shots, and, but she's so tender inside and she's awesome. And Owen, he's our little entertainer, and he's our performer. He loves to make us laugh and, and joke around, and he's so sweet, and, uh, he's so sweet. and um, we love our kids. This is a sweet time of life. They can be major rascals, too. I don't wanna paint a perfect picture here. Uh, you know that. They test our limits sometimes, but mostly we're just, we're just enjoying uh, our kids. So as Matt said, uh, when, I, when Margie and I left, uh, we had moved to Madison from Kansas City, And then in 2015, we moved back to Kansas City. Part of that is being close to grandparents with kids, uh, but part of it was this new opportunity to to work with Made to Flourish. And as Matt said, that's probably why I got invited back uh, here is because our organization is helping churches across the country think, how do we connect faith in Christ, this thing that we say is supposed to be so important, with how we spend a majority of our time? Because if you just do the math... Like, it's probably the biggest chunk of our life outside of, outside of sleep, right? I was thinking about this, and like, we, we say that, that faith in Christ is, is supposed to connect everything in our lives. It's supposed to influence everything that we do. And if we're serious about that, then we have to think pretty deeply and intentionally of what that means for Monday, for, for our, our, our work. So we've been in this series, uh, rework, uh, rethinking work. And we're looking at this very uh, idea of what does faith in Christ, following Jesus mean uh, for our Monday and, and thinking about that well. And the angle that we're pursuing today, that we're, that we're looking at today, is the question of identity. Identity. Who are you? And how is that connected to how you're spending a majority of your time? By the way, paid or unpaid? This doesn't have to be a paid role. You might be a stay-at-home parent or something else, but the place where you're contributing, how does that shape your identity in good ways, and how can it go off the rails? And by the way, this is, this is a topic that not uh, just religious people are having. It's not just like in church that people are talking about this issue. People outside of religious spaces are, are looking at this. So one example uh, that I love is uh, uh, the writings of Professor Carolyn Chen. I think we have a picture of her. So she's a professor of ethnic studies at UC Berkeley. Brilliant professor. And she recently wrote a book called Work, Pray, Code. Work, Pray, Code. And uh, she's out in the Bay Area, San Francisco, so she was talking to a bunch of people in tech, in Silicon Valley, saying like, what what does work mean to you? What what role does it have in your life? And uh, an excerpt of her book was recently in the New York Times, and here's what uh, that said. She writes, many said that they had become more spiritual, whole, and connected after working in tech. Their workplaces were communities where they found belonging, meaning, and purpose. But as I discovered during my research, the gospel of work is thin gruel, an ethically empty solution to meet our essential need for belonging and meaning. And it is starving us as individuals and communities. The title of that article, When Your Job Fills In for Your Faith, That's a Problem. So, you know, Professor Chen, uh, she's not a pastor, she's a researcher. And this is not a church, that's uh, the New York Times where she's talking about this. Just one other example uh, that I'll I'll put up on the screen here. So uh, Derek Thompson was writing in uh, The Atlantic a couple years ago. And he was saying, you know, the way that a lot of people think about work, it really is almost like a new religion. And he coined this term called workism. Just like you've got Buddhism, we have got Hinduism, we have got workism. So here's what he said. He said, what is workism? is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity in life's purpose. So a lot of smart people are saying that when it comes to work and our sense of identity, things are out of whack. They're not quite as they ought to be. So we're going to be exploring uh, that today and, and just asking, like, what, what does it look to have a right identity around work? What is it, how would we know if we're off track? And, and what's the difference between the two. One of the first questions that also comes to my mind is, is this like a recent problem? Is this like an American Western problem in a capitalistic society? Is this our problem, or is this a much older problem? Is this like a human problem? And I think we'll see today as we dig into the Bible and as we talk a little bit more, this is an old story. <laughs> it's really old. And in fact, the scripture that we're going to be looking at today takes us back to almost the very beginning of our Bibles, not in some tech scene, but in a blue-collar construction project where people's identity were way out of line when it was coming to their work project. So the text is Genesis 11, and if you want to pull it up, you can, but we're going to have it on the screens here, Genesis chapter 11, and just before we read this, A lot of Bible commentators say that the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it's almost like a set. It's like an opening set to the the Bible. And uh, in that set, God creates the world in Genesis 1. But after human beings sin, there's this downward spiral that it just gets kind of uglier and uglier until we come to Genesis 11. And that's where we're at when we pick up today's text. So here's what it says. It says, Now the whole earth... In the Hebrew, that could also read the whole land. So either the whole earth or the whole land had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. So here's a depiction of that tower. uh, And if some of you have ever uh, been in kind of Bible or or kids' church or whatever it would be. This is the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, this depiction comes from uh, an artist uh, named Hendrik van Cleve the Third in the 16th century. I'm not sure if that's what it looked like, but I love when artists use their imagination to depict uh, what it might have looked like. Uh, this tower that's going into the heavens. But as we look back uh, to the text, there's a a couple interesting uh, points that that stand out to me. So first of all, if we can bring that text uh, back up, Go go to the previous slide text, and then that next verse. Look at what the people said. They said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower, first of all, look at this, with its tops in the heavens. That's interesting. In the ancient Near East, uh, there were people that would build these high hills. They called them high places or ziggurats. And the idea is that if you built this high hill, you could go up there and like, the gods would come down and be closer to you. And you could be close to them and you could meet with them. But here it says they're not doing that. They're not simply building something where the gods can come down. They're actually gonna build a tower that goes into the heavens. They're going to be like, they're going to be like God. In fact, we kind of think that we are kind of God-like. We're pretty smart. That's the place where we belong. There's echoes of Genesis 3 there of of people saying, we want to be like God. And that was an original temptation. So that's what they're doing. That's their building project. But then this is a very interesting phrase. It says, let us make a name for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. So what do you hear when you hear that phrase? <laughs> I hear that these people are building something that is going to kind of make them look awesome. <laughs> it's going to reflect back on them. People are going to admire them. Maybe they'll even fear them and they won't attack them, you know, lest we be dispersed across the earth. Their work is going to say something about how great they are. That's what I hear when I read that passage but I wonder if there's something else that the original readers would have heard because you see that phrase, let us make in the original Hebrew that only occurs like that one other time in the book of Genesis. Only one other time. Do you remember where it also said, let us make go to these uh, next slides with uh, the Genesis passage. God had said, God had said, let us make humankind in our image. <laughs> but now there's a very different let us make. It's not God saying, let us make humankind in our image. Now, now the people are saying, let us make a name for ourselves. You see, the irony here is that when God had originally said, let us make humankind in our image, that had something to do with our work as well. Because he, after all, was the worker who creates this beautiful world. And he had commissioned humans. He said, now rule. Rule. Not with an iron fist, but show who I am. Image me as you create and as you make. Let it be a reflection back on who I am. Let my mercy and my justice and my creativity be evident in your work. But now the people are no longer saying that let us make. They're saying, let us make a name for ourselves. In other words, instead of the mirror reflecting back to God, they've taken the mirror with their work and say, It actually reflects back to me. It reflects back to us. See, ever since the Tower of Babel, that has been one of the most common struggles about our work. It's not about God's glory, it's about my name, or it's about our organization's name, or it's about our team's name. Or our ministry's name. And we'll do everything to protect our name, to make sure our name isn't tarnished, or we will actually like use people to make our name great. And I just want to say, I think this is a particular challenge for leaders, whether you're like a manager, a supervisor, or you know, the head of an educational institution or whatever it would be, because our work and our pursuit of our name affects so many people. So just one example. Um, Elon Musk. He's the CEO of Tesla, this car company, and by the way, I, I'm not making a statement about Elon Musk. I'm sure there's people here, you like Elon Musk, some people you don't know, or you don't like Elon Musk, some of you don't even know who Elon Musk is. Uh, that's beside my point. But he's, he's the CEO of this, uh, of, of, of Tesla, and he was getting flack because like is like a really hard place to work and there are really long hours. So he wants to respond to that, and he sends out this tweet, as he's apt to do. So uh, here's what he said. He said, sure, there are way easier places to work, but nobody ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. So that's all right, you know, maybe that's true. (laughs) If we wanna change the world, it's gonna require more. So they asked him a follow-up question. So like, what would be ideal then? What is the ideal work week? And here's uh, what he responded. He said it varies per person, but about 80 hours sustained, peaking above 100 at times. That, that's what it kind of takes for, for my company to, to advance. So let's just do a little math here. I'm, I'm not a mathematician. I, this is probably dangerous. I didn't study math, but uh, you know, let's just, I think this is pretty simple math. So if you've, got 80, if you've got 80 hours in a week, and let's just say you get a day off. Uh, the boss is being generous. So that's six days A week and do the math here. That's one, six, twenty, three, 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 three. So it's about a 13 and a third hours a day. Throw in a quick lunch, maybe a quick dinner. Uh, So that's a 14 hour day. That's your regular, that's the regular kind of what we require around here. So that's like a 7 a.m., 14 hours, takes you to 9 p.m. Maybe throw on, you know, like a half hour. Uh, Commute on the backside, 6.30 to 9.30. And that's what it takes around here to to, to work here. So if you go to 100, like, you just do the math, and now instead of six days, actually, you're going to need, like, you need, like, seven. You're going to need seven days of 14 or 15-hour days without a break. So, you know, let's talk about that for a second. (laughs) There's something very American and almost heroic about that story. Like we're doing whatever it takes to climb the mountain and we are going to do this thing that's so important. But in the biblical story, especially in the book of Exodus, there's also something very Egyptian about that story. I mean, this is my opinion, but I feel like Pharaoh could have sent out that text. (laughs) Do you hear the Israelites kind of grumbling about, you know, how we never get a day off and it's like, well, you know, Hey, there are easier places to work than building the palaces of Egypt, but no one ever changed the world on 40 hours a week. Like, I feel that that could have been said. And look, this isn't about Reagan on a car company. It could have been a t-shirt company. This could have been an educational institution. This could have been a ministry. But the fact is... (laughs) When we have these noble causes even sometimes, whenever work becomes the most significant, central part about our lives, it's probably because our names are on the line and we're seeking to protect our name. And when that shift happens, work is disconnected from God's intent. We're no longer imaging him. We've, we've turned work into something it was never designed uh, to be. Now, I imagine some of us are thinking, well, that's a little bit of extreme. I'm I'm (laughs) actually, Elon's uh, kind of a character. I'm not like him. I don't know if I'm making a name for myself in my work. (laughs) Uh, I just think it's a little bit important. And like, what would even, what would be the signs that maybe there are times when our identity is too wrapped up in our work? I was even trying to figure that out for myself. I'm not like Elon Musk, I don't think. So I've gotten some uh, diagnostic statements that we'll put on the screen, and just ask yourself if you could say this, maybe it's time to reexamine some things in your life. So here are just a couple diagnostic statements. We'll try this one. When work is going well, everything else in my life feels okay. But if work is going poorly, those around me know I'm pretty difficult to be around. <laughs> like it sort of infects everything else, uh, kind of the temperature at work or this statement work is allowed to interrupt everything else in my life could be on vacation could be with a family it's got free reign to just kind of come into my life here's another statement the idea of ceasing from work is scary because I feel like I will lose momentum or lose ground to others this is a competitive environment I got to keep going going and going to advance my name and my position in the company that's just the reality around here a couple other statements it's hard for me to feel happy about the success of others in work because I feel like it should have been me and they're taking away my opportunities. I can't celebrate someone else's success. Or this final one, just before I read it, sometimes work can actually give us a negative identity. That our, we, we have a sense that work is like a reflection of who we are and we don't feel good about it. And if that's your case, I'm sorry that you're in a situation like that. But here's how that might sound. Says, I'm ashamed of my role at work and would prefer not to mention it because it might cause people to look down on me. And that's the brokenness of our world, right? People often see us and who we are based on our work situation. Here's the way it comes in my life. I was talking to some of the Black Hawk staff uh, before this message, and they asked me that question. They're like, Well, what does it look like for you? I'm like, Me? I, I don't have any problems with this issue in my life. So here's what it looks like. Uh, I know there are times when I find too much identity in my work. (laughs) And it's either big successes that I have or big failures, one of the two. And I know my identity is wrapped up in my work because of the highlight reel that goes on in my mind hours after or even days after. Do you know what I'm talking about, the highlight reel? Like you watch a sports game and then afterwards it's like all the best moments are showing on the highlight reel. So I'll do something awesome at work, and I'm at the top of my game, and I am just, you know, that went really well. And then later, I'm out for a walk, or I'm mowing the lawn, and I'm thinking about how awesome I did. <laughs> or something that was really bad, and I'm like embarrassed, and like, that really portrayed me in a bad light. People are going to think less of me, and I'm out on a walk or mowing the lawn, and the highlight reel is just going. And it's like, gosh, I must think that my value as a person is so tied to how I'm performing, and my name is either on the rise or going low that I must be making uh, work, make a name for myself. It's about my identity. So there's gotta be a better way, right? There's gotta be a better way. And it starts by realizing that all of us have multiple identities. So we've got identities around like our place in the family. So for instance, I'm a husband. That's an identity marker that I carry. Uh, I'm also a father. That gives me a sense of identity. I'm also a son to my parents, and that has a certain identity. I'm also a sibling to my other siblings. I'm a brother. So for you, you have identities based on your race or ethnicity, your gender, your citizenship where you live in the country even around your sports team we take on these different identities and yes our work and that doesn't mean that we're confused that means that we're complex we're multifaceted we're we're complicated people and as I think about our various identities I think of our lives like a wheel so this is your life And it's like all these spokes on the wheel are your various identities. We've all got lots of spokes on our wheel. But you notice when you look at this wheel, the spokes, they don't go all the way across, do they? Every single one of the spokes plays a key function, a key role. But every single one is anchored in this hub right here. In fact, if these spokes are not anchored in the hub, you're gonna have problems. Your wheel is not gonna function properly. And these hubs are amazing things. So I'm not a bike person, some of you are, but like hubs play a really important role. They not only anchor the spokes, but the front hub gives the bike direction because it's connected to the handlebars. It actually, this like transfers direction. It's so key for that. The back wheel on a bike is responsible for power. Because the chain is connected to it. Here's the point. Our various identities, our various spokes of our lives, they were never meant to set the direction, to anchor your life, to give you power, because they can change in a moment, right? In fact, when you look at this tire, it's obvious that the hub is the center of the wheel. And when you look at the New Testament, it is obvious that Jesus Christ is to be the center of our lives. Here are just a couple verses that demonstrate that. This is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ is living his life through me. It's beautiful. Here's just one other example of that. In Colossians chapter 3. So since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That's where our mindset is to be. Not that we forget the things of the world, but that we have a focus, the central hub of our lives that directs everything else. Every once in a while you see this on display. You've probably seen this on display so I, uh, I don't watch a lot of golf. I'm not really a golfer. I go once in a while and, and hack around the course. But I do watch one tournament every year, uh, the Masters. So this comes on in April. If you're a golf fan or maybe you've seen this on TV, it kind of like announces spring to me. Because it's in, in Georgia. It's this gorgeous setting. But this year, there was a young golfer who is 25 years old. And he rose through the ranks and was playing really good golf. And the last round, when so many amazing golfers, they just fall off the cliff and they they crumble. He showed this remarkable poise. And shot after shot and putt after putt, he was just clutch. And he goes on to win it. 25-year-old, his name is Scotty Scheffler. Here's a picture of Scotty holding a kind of the trophy after he won the Masters. He's got the green jacket that all the the winners wear. The interviewers asked him afterwards, like, how did you do it? How did you have such poise? How did you remain so level-headed that you could, you know, it looked like you were just in complete control? And here's what he said to the interviewer. He said, the reason why I play golf is because I'm trying to glorify God and all that he has done in my life. And so for me, my identity isn't a golf score. Like Meredith, my wife told me this morning, she says, if you win this golf tournament today or if you lose this golf tournament by 10 shots, if you never win another golf tournament again, I'm still going to love you. You're still the same person. Jesus loves you and nothing changes. I love that. Then, in a sport where literally your name is on a leaderboard and it's either rising or it's falling, Scotty's able to say, that's not my identity. I'm not my golf score. Now here's the reality. I realize that most of us are not professional athletes working out our identity on live TV, right? We're nurses and we're teachers. We're receptionists, we're lawyers. We work at UW or we work at someplace else. And I just wonder if there's going to come a moment in the next week or the next couple of weeks where this question about your name and your identity is going to come up. And just like Scotty had that phrase, I'm not my golf score, I wonder if we all need a phrase like that. Like, I'm not my sales goal, I'm not my salary, I'm not my paper that I'm submitting for a journal, I'm not my GPA. I'm not my sermon. Amen. And when we do that, we're remembering that, no, there's a different hub that actually anchors all of our work, and it's not my name. Now, the irony is, I think that anchoring our identities in Christ actually make us better workers. So I don't think that should be the goal. That's not like why we uh, put our identity in Christ so like we can work better. But like, I think it actually matters. I mean, think about it. If your work isn't about your name, You can accept criticism and critique without letting it crush you because it's not about your name. I also think it makes us more humble in our work because we can accept praise without letting it go to our head. It's not about my name. I'm anchored in Christ. I think it also makes us be more other-centered because it's not about me rising in my name, but I actually can have the energy now to be fixated on others' well-being and seeing them succeed. And that actually is incredibly valuable in the workplace. This issue of finding your identity in Christ can make or break your work life. I, I would say this. The best job with a misplaced identity can destroy you. The worst job with your identity firmly anchored in Christ can be deeply meaningful. Every job has purpose when you know who you are. Every job. But the biblical understanding of identity doesn't end there. That's because all of our identities come with a responsibility. So think about this if you're a father or a mother, you have responsibility for your kids. If you're a teacher, you have a responsibility for your students. So what is our primary responsibility if our identity is anchored in Christ? What, what, is our, what is our responsibility? One of the answers, one of the key answers, the core answers comes in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. We're gonna just look at two quick verses. So 1 Peter chapter 2. It says you also, by the way, this whole passage about Christ being the center, the cornerstone, the most important part of this community he's building. It says you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then later at the end of this particular section, he says, but you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. If you've made Jesus Christ the center of your life, then the Bible says one of your core responsibilities is you are a member of the royal priesthood. You're a priest. You could actually say that if you want. I'm a priest. In fact, the next time you're at a party, <laughs> someone asks you, what do you do? Who, who are you? Tell me a little about yourself. You just say, well, I'm a priest. <laughs> and then they'll just step away. And... When we hear the language of priest, we might hear that through the lens of like the leader of a Catholic church. Maybe you come from a, a Catholic background. But of course, the New Testament isn't talking about that. It's talking about the, the Jewish priesthood. And the Jewish priesthood, if you could boil everything they did down to two things, it's just these two things. They revealed who God was to the people, and they interceded for the people back to God. That's it. They revealed who God was, they showed who God was to the people, and they interceded for the people back to God. So what does that mean for your work? It means the first part of your job description, whether that's paid or unpaid is that you're a priest. So you're not just a plumber. You're a priest who's a plumber. You're not just an insurance broker. You're an insurance broker. You're, you're a priest who's an insurance broker. You're not just a, a professor. You're, you're a priest who's a professor. You're not just a bus driver. You're a priest who is a bus driver. And as I was thinking about that, you know, what does that actually mean for us? What would it look like then to take on that priestly role just of that second one of Intercession. I've got just a a little uh, diagram here that I think can help us. So, as you embrace that role of intercession as a priest in your place of work, let's just try this. So, let's put me right here my team, my customers, my organization. in my industry. So what would this look like? Let's just say your job tomorrow, actually not tomorrow, July 4th. uh, Your job, when you go to your job, is that you work for a large, privately held, electronic medical records company. (laughs) I know that's probably not an option here in Madison. Me, Heavenly Father, I'm walking in from my car and I'm just stressed and I ask that today you would help me to be w- aware of your presence and that I would actually be the sort, sort of person you've called me to be in this space. Heavenly Father, my team, we're working on this big project and there's just conflict and um, I pray you'd be at work creating a spirit of unity with my team as we engage in this project. God, our customers, we're, we're dealing with this big hospital system and they're just not getting it and they're frustrated. Would you give them grace and a sense of understanding as we talk to them today? I don't feel like I'm connecting. We, we need some help. And would you help them because their work impacts so many lives in their hospital. God, for our organization where this big employer, so many people come to Madison to work here. And I pray that you give our leaders wisdom that they would lead this company with a sense of justice and propriety and and have a sense of where we should be going and they would help create an environment where people can thrive. And then our industry, we're in this healthcare industry that is so amazing but also so broken. Might healthcare in this country be a reflection of you who are the healer? You're the healer, God. Would you do something great beyond our imagination in this country? You see, because you don't just work at A large electronic medical device company. You're a records company. You're also a priest in that place. Let's just do one more. So you're a student, either at high school or maybe one of the colleges here. Heavenly Father, I'm stressed out. I've got tests coming up. I feel like I've tried to cram everything in my mind, but would you give me your peace today? Would you help me? God, for my team, that's really my classmates, we're all stressed too. And I think of Jane in particular. She lost she lost her mom last week. And I pray that your presence would be evident to her as she engages in the classroom. Would you help her? God, for our customers, uh, we kind of serve our professors. And uh, I don't know if they're our customers or not, but they're basically like our customers. And, you know, they're, they've had a pretty rough stretch here too. There are challenges within departments. Would you, my bi- I think my biology teacher, Miss Johnson, would you help her? Would she sense your presence? And God, this organization, you know, I'm at this college and, What an amazing institution. Would you uh, help the chancellor and the deans who are trying to do their best? Would you give them a sense of your presence and lead them well so that we can flourish in this place? And we're in this education industry that's so amazing, but it's so broken too. I pray that somehow in our country, that we would be a country where there could be education for all people, realizing that you've given us potential in our brains to learn. And you, after all, sent your, your son to be a teacher. So help us to be that. You see, you're a priest. (laughs) That's the first part of your job description, whether your work is paid or unpaid. And I'll just say in closing I think this is what our world is longing to see. Not merely that the Christian faith is true, but that it's good. It's as relevant on Monday as it is on Sunday. And you don't just have to come into our building or be part of our tribe, but actually when we scatter, because at Blackhawk, we know this, right? We say this again and again. The church is not the building. I mean, you might have said to someone today, I'm going to church, but actually the church is not the building. We're the church. And we're primarily the church out there. And my prayer for us all is that by God's spirit, we would embrace our role with him at the center, taking on our priestly role to be God's people out there. Because I think that's what our world needs, especially in a time like this. Would you pray with me? (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you don't just rule from afar, but you actually come to live in us and among us You empower us, and sometimes I know that the world of our work can feel like a million miles away. We might not be aware of your presence just because we're going about our work, but you are there in us, among us. I pray that as these people scatter across Dane County, wherever they would live and serve, paid or unpaid, that you would empower them to be your people where they are, And of course, we can't do that without your spirit and without your presence. So we know you walk with us. Help us to walk with you and keep in step with your spirit. We give these things to you and we pray in Christ's name. All God's people said, amen. Amen.